This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. And here's a bill that gets serious about plastic recycling. State Senator Christine Rolfs of Bainbridge Island and Representative Liz Berry of Seattle have proposed what's called the RAP Act, Washington Recycling and Packaging. And um, uh, how will this be different from the way we recycle now, Senator? This is a much needed modernization of the state's current recycling system, which was created, you know, years ago, decades ago, before plastic packaging and plastic waste was so uh, ubiquitous, was so present in our lives. And so part of the bill, the bill does three main things, but the main part of it, I would say, is that it mandates that the producers, the packaging manufacturers, need to be responsible for increasing the recyclability of their product using post-consumer recycled content and helping with the recycling system, so helping to modernize the whole system. So that's the main part of the bill. Rather than making it a local government household responsibility, we're asking the manufacturers of the packaging, the manufacturers of the garbage um, to, to be responsible for collecting it and helping us dispose of it properly. Does, does this relieve us of having to do this plastic triage that I go through every two weeks where I'm trying to sort number one from the number two and the number seven? Uh, can, can they just standardize it so it's all recyclable? That is the main goal, right? That and part of part of the bill actually explicitly um, calls out for a statewide system so all of us know what is being recycled and how to recycle it. So yes, um, in a couple of years, when this goes through, you can you should be able to not have to go through that dance. And you're lucky, you probably live in the Seattle area. Many uh, places don't have the same kinds of recycling opportunities that folks in the Seattle area have. How does it play out to have manufacturers responsible for the recycling of the materials they produce? Are we going to get another bin for the plastic wrap? You know, they're going, we're going to ask them to come up with that system. So that may be the case, but it also, the, the bill also re, um, refers to, it also includes glass, it includes metals and aluminum, uh, cardboard and paper, anything that's used in packaging. So, the, you know, currently you can recycle cardboard and paper, but it's not supposed to get wet, right? So since we commingle it, there's questions about whether the paper that you're recycling is actually getting to a recycling, you know, getting to a pulp and paper mill to get recycled or whether it ends up in a landfill. So the system that we're setting up requires the packaging manufacturers, the companies um, that are making and selling these products to help us come up with a better system. So it could be, we may, we may go back to where we were 20 years ago, where we had separate bins, or we may go back, we may move forward to a place where the recycling sorting systems can handle all of this and the technology um, can take care of it. As a kid, I was always fascinated going to Oregon and seeing you could get five cents for yeah. this aluminum can. I want to get paid. Yeah, I want to get paid too. So that's the second part of this bill <laughs> is getting us exactly. paid. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, so the second part of the bill establishes a system um, much like Oregon's, a bottle deposit, bottle return system. Uh, we're working with the folks in Oregon that constructed and managed that system, and we're hoping to introduce that to uh, Washington State. Because I think a lot of people have the same experience you have. Lots of people over the years have said, how come we don't do what Oregon does? And we know that that kind of system 
collects about 80 to 90 percent of the bottles that are sold That's in amazing. the state get. Yeah, they get no, is that the one that uses the machines? I'm familiar with the one in Connecticut where you collect your cans and your bottles and you feed them one by one into a machine, which actually senses the kind of bottle, reads the label. And with the glass bottle, you can hear it getting smashed as it mm. goes down the throat of this machine. And then it spits out a ticket, which which gives you money. Yeah, you know, that's the, that's kind of the awesome part of it. The um, Oregon system is completely modernized, though. They have it all by barcode and QR code, and you get an account, and you fill a bag, and you mm-hmm. dump the bag into a big bin, and the bin counts your stuff, and then you wow. get a credit, like get like kind of like an EBT card. You get a credit into your account, and then you can use your account for whatever you want, kind of like if you're used to doing Venmo or any of yeah. those kinds of systems, kind of like that. Whether we whether that's the model we'll use or whether we'll do a hybrid of what's done in other states, that's still up for discussion. Now, did you add this part to the bill because you knew it would be popular and help you with popularity and therefore the manufacturers would have their hands tied and have to play along with you? <laughs> I, I wish we were that clever. No, it's um, we know of maybe 10 states that have bottle collection. They also about eight of them also have adopted or are looking at the packaging responsibility part of the bill as well. So it's uh, I think it's the 2020s version of a comprehensive recycling program it includes this bottle deposit um, set up and the manufacturer responsibility. So no, in fact, I wasn't sure if it would be popular, but I'm hearing from people from all around the state who are um, excited about the bottle return. I like system. it. It's, it's, it's kind of like going to the casino. You know, you yeah. feed them the bottles and you, <laughs> you get a ticket with money on it. You get a ticket with money go. on it. Yeah. I always felt like, why, why don't I get to earn money for recycling? I'm a great, <laughs> I always felt left out because Oregon right there yeah. does it. Now you said, right, and we, you know what we know from Oregon, this is two fun things. I think one is um, people, the Oregon, system has your account attached to you can um, have like automatic withdrawals into like your kids college savings account or your checking account like they they, or your favorite charity they have all sorts of choices in there so that's interesting and then the second part is people who don't want to take the time to recycle their bottles that way can they should still be able to recycle them in the bin the way that we do it um, but the Oregon system also has um, a, a way that you can, you know, give it to your church and your church can collect it all. And then your church makes the money from it. So there's all sorts of options for people, if whether you want the 10 cents yourself or you're, you don't want the hassle of it and you're willing to let somebody else take it. It sounds like a slam dunk. Why didn't this pass last time it was proposed? Legislation is an evolution. And um, last year was the first year the bottle deposit part of this bill was proposed and it just wasn't, um, it was a short session and not a lot of discussion around it. The packaging part of this, which is really a tougher part of the bill, has been proposed or talked about since 2019. And we think we're at a sweet spot right now where we're um, able to create a system to reduce the packaging to start with. Senator Christine Rolfs of Bainbridge Island, who is sponsoring the RAP Act, which will end our plastic recycling headaches forever. Do I have that right? That, I love that tagline, yeah. <laughs> They're going to use you in a campaign ad. Oh, my. <laughs> thank you so much. All right, thank you. The only problem is that Chris was... 
being quiet, but gritting his teeth as he heard this, because uh, full disclosure, he's from Oregon, and they have where they have the system in place. So what's what What do you think is the downside of this? Well, first of all, that's a dollar and twenty to every twelve pack you buy, uh, because you know they add that ten cents per mm-hmm. can, and then so therefore, if you don't recycle it or end up, you know, you so it through drives the prices up. But what is really ha- my brothers are down there; they're just decrying this. When this went into effect a year and a half ago, when they went from the system where you know you could drop off your okay, you go to the thing and you you get you get your money back at the recycler to the bag thing with the barcode they mm. actually say it's a giant pain now it's actually really yeah it, that it made it a lot more difficult uh to do it which i didn't quite understand because it seemed like a bag was easier and you just let them yeah. handle it but the they, they they don't like it they don't know a lot and a lot of people down there i've talked to said they don't like this idea for a variety of reasons um it's kind of spurred an underground economy in the big way that's always been a big problem uh down in the Portland area I mean, collecting this stuff and- where where the people you know kind of manipulate the homeless population to get out they go out and they get cans they steal cans they steal the barcode bags sometimes and transfer them to other bags and leave the barcode bags alone uh, and then they uh, then they go and a lot of the recycling places have become basic uh, uh, people regular folks don't go there anymore yeah. because it's such a sketchy area to go to in fact well I mean if homeless people want to pick up litter and get money for it why not well the, yeah but then they you know the the folks that they make do the work at like a penny on the dollar versus the people who then do it oh, get see. the extra this money it's an organized yes by... it's an organized <laughs> th- you know situation like that I see. uh but yeah so my, my brothers aren't big fans of it they kind of like the old system uh which to me seemed odd as i said but it's just it's not a panacea uh as it's been in progress yeah matter of fact the first time i went down to the beach with them last a uh, year and a half ago and i'm like where you know who Who's got the bag, you know, so we can just throw out, take our cans or do whatever so you guys can recycle. They're like, well, it's my bag. Well, no, 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 brother's like, no, it's my bag. And they're because <laughs> it's got my barcode on it. And I'm like, what? What are you guys talking about? So well, at least they're competing over cleaning yeah, up the trash. I yeah, mean, exactly. Yeah. So it's just kind of interesting. But I don't like adding the cost on the front end because if you forget to do it, then, you know, you're out yeah. that, that money. Way back in 1853, the signature of a lame duck president created Washington Territory. And so our resident historian, Felix Bonnell, is here with a look at the life and somewhat tarnished legacy of President Millard Fillmore. Brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Morning, yeah, it was two days before inauguration, back when they had inauguration in March. This was March 2nd, 1853. Millard Fillmore signed the legislation creating Washington Territory. Congress had just passed it. Fillmore was a member of the Whig Party and in some ways one of the predecessors to the Republicans. Now, Dr. Paul Finkelman is a president of Gratz College near Philadelphia. He's also author of a book about Millard Fillmore that was published a decade ago. Dr. Finkelman says the process of Oregon Territory being split into Washington Territory is pretty normal. And we've talked about that here before, how in 1851, uh, you know, non-native settlers north of the Columbia didn't feel like they were getting a fair shake from the government down there in Oregon City. So they organized and petitioned Congress for this, to create the separate territory of Columbia. Now, it took a while. Things moved much slower in those days. And that was pretty normal. But what was not normal was the presidency of Millard Fillmore. And the unnormal part began almost immediately after President Zachary Taylor died in July 1850. Fillmore had been Taylor's vice president. As was the custom, all the cabinet secretaries submitted their resignations to give Fillmore the opportunity to refuse to accept them, which was especially critical given the sudden death of President Taylor. But Paul Finkelman says Millard Fillmore went his own way. 
Phil Moore weirdly accepts every single one of these resignations. In other words, he basically fires the whole cabinet and starts over. Uh, he has no idea who he's going to put in many of these positions, and he spends a good deal of his first year trying to actually fill his cabinet because he finds that people don't want to serve under him. They don't want cabinet positions. So he goes from one piece of chaos to another. Yeah, and so it doesn't go well for President Fillmore, who's remembered by many, if he's remembered at all, for signing the Fugitive Slave Law, which further inflamed the divisions already growing into what would eventually erupt in 1861 in the Civil War. Now, Paul Finkelman says Fillmore's politics around race were consistent with his views. Fillmore has a long history of being opposed to anti-slavery, being opposed to abolitionists, uh, being pretty racist in his behavior. Um, and I And I use racist in the context of the 1850s, not in our own times. That is, by the standards of his day, he was overwhelmingly hostile to black rights. He used offensive language when talking about blacks in ways that other people didn't. And when, as a historian, you have to look at the language of the time to understand what people are saying and doing. Fillmore is a bad actor when it comes to slavery and race by the standards of his own day, not by our standards. Wow. So that's a pretty harsh damnation yeah. of that. Um, and uh, and why, why is this? Finkelman says that's just who Fillmore was. Um, maybe it's because he wasn't educated in the traditional sense. Um, he's a little bit like Abe Lincoln in that he's sort of a frontier guy who taught himself the law by reading law books. You know, Fillmore was born in 1800. He got into politics in the 1820s, and maybe this is a, a good clue. He was first a part of something called the Anti-Masonic Party in Western New York. Uh -huh. You know, any anti-party, you know, it's, it's got to be a, a good indicator of something. Um, he served in the New York Assembly, got elected to Congress, and became a protege of Senator Daniel Webster of Massachusetts. And he had national ambitions, which is how he ended up running as vice president in 1848. Now, as the incumbent, he did run for a full term as president in 1852. At a divided convention of the Whigs in June 1852... General Winfield Scott got the nomination instead of the incumbent president. Scott was believed to be a better bet than Fillmore to beat the Democratic nominee, Franklin Pierce, namesake of Pierce County. So Fillmore was a lame duck for more than eight months by the time he signed Washington Territory into being. Uh, he did run for president again in 1856 as a standard bearer of the Know Nothing Party, um, which was anti-Catholic, <laughs> anti-Irish, anti-immigration, and so on. Right. He later married a wealthy widow and settled in Buffalo and became something of a secondary political figure in the 1860s. Fillmore is one of the very, very few former Whigs who does not become a Republican, but instead um, opposes Lincoln. And during the Civil War, is is an embarrassment. He's an embarrassment to to himself because he makes a speech where he praises the South and denounces abolition, denounces ending slavery, and he lives. Uh, the rest of his life in kind of semi-disgrace. And Fillmore passed away in 1874 at age 74. And I asked Paul Finkelman how we as Washingtonians, how, how should we regard Millard Fillmore as a president whose signature created Washington Territory? You should feel neither stain nor honor. You should simply say that it's nice that in 1853 Congress decided to split Washington off from Oregon so Oregon could go its way and Washington go its way. And by the luck of the draw, you happen to have that law signed by somebody who is arguably one of the five or six worst presidents in American history.
On the other hand, if he'd waited to Pierce, you would have had somebody who's also one of the five or six worst presidents. I mean, we have we have a string of disastrous presidents. Uh, Fillmore, Pierce, and Buchanan are generally considered to be in the bottom. We used to call them the bottom five. Now I think we have to call them the bottom six. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and fill in the blank there on the other one if you need to. Yeah. So, yeah, is it, it's sort of ni- is it neither here nor there that Millard Fillmore signed the legislation creating Washington Territory? No, it's important because it's a signature. It's a sign of the times that, from, that we emerge from as a political entity, separate from what, what, what the Oregon Territory that we've been for a couple of years. So I never knew that much about Millard Fillmore before. And I, I knew a lot more talking to Paul Finkelman. Historian Felix Spinell, who joins us every Wednesday and Friday here on Seattle's Morning News. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, Dave. Seattle's Morning News. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. I'm seeing in New York City, they're, they're now talking about, they're, they're saying downtown is never going to go back to where it was. And it's time to start turning some of these empty office buildings into housing. So let's call in chief economist for Windermere Real Estate, Matthew Gardner. Matthew, what's going on? We, I believe that there's one building which they're looking to convert right now. And in theory, yeah, I, I think it could be a great idea. Now, the question is going to be, if you think about these office buildings, how feasible is it to convert them? There's a big problem, especially with the newer buildings. Uh, and that is because of what's called core depth. And if you imagine these office buildings being built around a central core, normally the elevator banks. Mm. And because of the way they're built, uh, it means if you were to try and convert them, you're going to end up with an awful lot of skinny, narrow, uh, quite frankly, dark units. But more than that, it's also plumbing penetration. Uh, You've got to get plumbing into all those units, and that can be very expensive as well. So if you could have a developer be given an office building to convert Mm then yeah, I think it would work. If, however, he has to pay for it, which I'm pretty darn sure he will, then the math doesn't necessarily work all the time. It can work on some smaller, older buildings, absolutely. A lot of our newer ones, though, it would just be too expensive. I hadn't thought about that. So, yeah, if you're going to turn a floor of offices into a floor full of homes, you'd have to build a whole lot of bathrooms, which require a whole lot of plumbing. That is correct. And that can get very expensive when you're drilling through a concrete slab uh, as often as you'd have to do it to make that work. It, it would be it would be a very tough, uh, tough deal to put together just mathematically to, to make the finances work. Yeah. Well, then it sounds like employers are just going to have to make their job offers more appealing or their jobs more interesting to uh, lure people back. Well, I think what, that's an interesting point you bring up because I am, have been saying that I do believe we'll have a recession uh, next year. And a lot of business owners that I've been speaking to are rather happy about that. Really? Yeah. And here's why. Right now, they're trying to get their staff to come back into the office more frequently. But because the labor market's so tight, the employees are saying, no, make me. Uh, you try too hard. I'm going to leave, go down the street, work for somebody else and make more money. Uh-huh. Now, as we start seeing and as we are already starting to see the unemployment rate here start to creep up a little bit, well, ultimately, the shoe could end up on the other foot where the employer will say, guess what? You are going to come in Uh, and the labor market not being as tight. Well, maybe they have the the upper hand at at that point. I see. So now uh, it's come in or lose the paycheck. Yeah. Mm. One more thing, and that's gas prices. I've noticed a dramatic drop from what they were last year, so I'm happy for that. But at the same time, we have a cap-and-trade program.
to uh, control carbon emissions going into effect in this state, uh, carbon tax, which Correct. by some accounts is going to add something like uh, 49 cents a gallon to, to the price of gas. Now, I, I'm, I will tell you, uh, I feel a little bit differently about this than I did because having gotten resigned for a, a, a year to like $5 gas, the fact that my $3 gas might cost 49 cents more is no is no longer a big deal, frankly. But I, how do you feel about it? Yeah. Uh, well, you have to look at it. I mean, our gas tax in the state as it stands today is one of the highest in the country, as we are all fully aware. Uh, adding on to that, well, that's going to be, uh, I think, for a lot of people, somewhat of a tough pill to take. Uh, so... Yes, it's Gavin. Now, are we going to see prices? As you said, we have seen them come down. I think they're going to continue to come down, looking at the futures of light sweet crude, uh, where they're trading today. Uh, I think we could see some further drop in pricing, which will be a good thing because our prices here for gas are some of the highest in the country. Uh, but adding on to it, even though we've perhaps got used to it, or did we really get used to $5 gas, Dave? I'm not sure that we did. Uh, it made me always choke when I had to occasionally fill my car. <laughs> but I bet it made you drive a little more slowly, right? Oh, you better believe it, Dave. Well, there you that, go. Even taking mass transit. Look at that. Um, and you're, oh, a, you're a big guy. You, you, one's best. You're a big guy. You have to practically be stuffed into mass transit. Yeah, pretty, pretty close to it. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it, was, it was not the most fun. But anyway, uh, but I, I think that... Yes, it's going to be important, but again, you've got to try and balance the, the people's needs. And if you think about it, same thing with food, is that with high inflation, that disproportionately impacts lower income households. And as does gas, they do tend to drive more. So it's going to be problematic, I think, for certain segments uh, of our local society and community here uh, than it will be for others. But ultimately, we've got to start taking care of the planet. I think we do. But it's uh, I think a lot of people are going to be pretty frustrated if they start to see prices go up again, not because of oil shortages or war in Ukraine or what have you, but because of uh, legislation done here in Washington state. Yeah, that, that might stick in the craw of, uh, of, uh, of some of the population. Winterbeer Chief Economist Matthew Gardner. Matthew, thank you. David, as always, a great pleasure. The governor delivered his State of the State address yesterday. Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich listened to every second of it. He was on the edge of his seat, and he joins us live now with uh, what the governor said. Good morning, Matt. Riveting oratory there from the governor yesterday. But, you know, Dave, it's nothing that we didn't already expect him to say. And again, we're now in day three of a 105-day session. That's important, 105 days, because they're, they're supposed to get more done than the, than the other 60-day session, which they had last year. Uh, but again, the governor took the big, big stage yesterday, laid out his uh, ideas for what he wants to do for over the next two years. Uh, but he touted his his successes in behavior, starting behavioral health facilities, a working tax credit. He paid family leave. He was proud of the broadband access that's been initiated throughout the state. And he basically gave his assessment of the state. As I can proudly report to you this. The state of our state is strong. And I'm happy. And that's, uh, you got the normal applause, primarily from uh, Democrats there. Uh, the Republicans kind of stayed quiet. Um, but again, right off the bat, when he started what his big priorities were, he went straight to the big ticket item, which is a $4 billion 
bond issuance uh, that the voters will eventually vote on if it goes through the legislature in November um, for housing. And the governor says housing needs to be made with speed and scale to solve the homelessness issue. The fundamental underlying challenge is that we do not have enough housing in our state for our people. And it is a difficult irony of having such a strong economy. Well-paid workers flock here for jobs, forcing lower-paid workers to compete for housing. And when there's not enough housing for all, rents and prices skyrocket beyond what we can afford. And until we fix our housing crisis, thousands of people will remain homeless. And let me under, underline that last statement there, because he basically, in other, in other words that he said leading up to this legislative session, is that housing is our number one issue, and all ills relate to housing, the mm-hmm. lack of a behavioral health treatment, people on the street, uh, the drug abuse crisis, because people aren't in affordable housing. You know, they're, they're couch surfing or living on mm-hmm. the street. And so they so sing what, it to despair? Is that what he's saying? Well, he, he, yeah, he, he's saying that, I mean, he really put a cornerstone on the word housing. And then off of that word, he would start relating all the other issues in the state, even uh, everything, even tying to workforce shortages because people can't get a job because they can't afford a house here. So he says housing is our problem. And so that's why he's, again, we've talked about it before, Mm -hmm. this $4 billion plan to build housing. And here's him explaining it yesterday, what $4 billion will buy us. This is why I'm proposing a $4 billion referendum that will significantly speed up the construction of thousands of new units that will include shelters, supportive housing, and affordable housing. This will be combined with additional behavioral health support and substance use treatment and employment services and more. Why? Well, it's because we know that substance use treatment and mental health support can work when you combine it with secure, stable housing. And there, there's the linchpin right there, you know, housing, housing, housing. That's going to be his big word for the next 105 days. Well, the Republicans gave a response, and as you expect, they said this $4 billion plan won't work. There's a lot of other issues that we can look at before we start spending $4 billion over six years on programs that are already proven to not work. So that was Representative Peter Urbano. Um, he uh, giving the Republican response, and basically the Republicans are saying there are other big priorities, namely public safety and and combating crime. So, Dave, that's a, kind of a an, a rundown of what the governor had to say regarding that. Mm-hmm. So, in in terms of the providing housing, I think the other thing Republicans are arguing is you could build more housing if there were again fewer zoning restrictions, uh, fewer uh, requirements for permitting, et cetera, et cetera. The governor addressed that. Yeah, yes, yes. He's basically asking the legislature to uh, override local control. Zoning has always been a local government issue uh, or control. They want to be able to say, hey, we want to put an apartment building here with higher density, but not over at this corner. And so the governor is asking the state to start pushing for higher density zoning in some of these cities city areas and cities may resist that so there's going to be a fight between the cities and what legislatures are the legislators are talking about okay what about this uh, backyard burial idea yeah no so there's a lot of little things that happened yesterday it actually got a hearing and when you start when I'm going to start reporting on these bills these are bills actually getting a hearing that means they actually are in play mm-hmm. and this one got went into play yesterday representative jim walsh 
is sponsoring the idea of backyard burials, where I like to say you can bury grandma in the backyard. It is a, a tradition in some parts of our state that this was the way people took care of their family members, and it's kind of gotten uh, kind of gotten lost. They would be limited to family members that owns the property. This is not a situation where these family plots would become any sort of commercial venture. So basically, he's saying, you know, let's make uh, a law that allows legal burial of family members on people who own their own property the size of the but you know but the size of the property is kind of an issue and that was one of the concerns raised by the county auditors of washington state we want to make sure that there's little or no risk for contamination as well for water quality uh, and other ecosystem there's no discussion in the bill at all about parcel size uh, and the potential for how many burials might exist on a certain parcel in a certain area and we think it's appropriate to consider that yeah if you have a large family that could be a problem couldn't it yeah. And the thing is, you know, everyone asks me, well, what, Matt, what about when they sell the property? Well, and that's a that's a big thing, too, because once this allows for the family burial area to exist and it's required by law that the new owners of the property have to be told that, you know, grandma and grandpa are buried right here. And you have to say that and then put it into the uh, parcel documents. But after that, once a new owner buys the place. They can do what they want with that backyard burial, as the law is written right huh. now. Okay, so they, they can just exhume the bodies and have them shipped somewhere else. I it, that's there's no explanation. I mean, it's it's going to be the their property. They can do what they want with it. It's basically there's a on both sides of the coin here. Uh, uh, so proponents are saying this is a great idea of protecting property rights and doing what you can on right. your own personal property. But at the same time, if you sell the property, the property right, that same argument plays. You know, yeah. people can do what they want with that property. If they want to exhume the graves and the uh, the urns and the coffins that are there, um, that's their prerogative. <laughs> and then a couple other things, Dave, that uh, I, I want to point out to you if you have time here. Um, the There was a bill. They're finally addressing... Uh, cannabis use outside of the workplace. And so a bill was presented yesterday formally that would allow people to use cannabis outside of work. Uh, and then that work job, if it's not federally regulated, mm -hmm. uh, you can't test for that. You can't disqualify oh, really? someone for using uh -huh. cannabis outside of their job. Interesting. And that, and that bill has a chance, huh? That It does. It does. I mean, it, it's finally addressing what what's happening in this state. It's you know, cannabis is legal here. And you qual uh, unless you have, like, you know, you're flying a plane or driving a big truck or a tractor, something that has some federal regulation to it because you're using large equipment, uh, if you're, uh, hey, you know, I'm just saying, you know, dishwasher in the back in a restaurant, the restaurant really can't preclude a, that dishwasher because of the job that they're doing uh, as a use of cannabis. You can't do that. Again, that's just a, an idea that was presented here. And one other thing I thought was interesting, there's a, they're going to be addressing pollution and stuff like that, that from going on, going forward, as if this law goes into effect, those uh, water fountains that you see everywhere yeah. and the jugs where you, you can fill up your water bottle, those would be required going forward on any place where you're going to build a water fountain. 
So where you can fill up your water jug uh, mm-hmm. is not a requirement right now. But if this bill passed, that any new water fountain built in the state would have to have one of those. Guy News Radio's Matt Markovich. Thank you, Matt. Still on those plastic leaf covers, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Why don't you show up and go, I would like to fund no, plastic. No, no. Would be okay. inappropriate. Yeah. You just like to watch, not participate. That's yeah. Right. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Cancer was no match for a Memphis woman who is bound and determined to give her version of a hug to anyone fighting the same battle. The story from CBS Memphis. Stitch by stitch. To the clank of her sewing machine, Cheryl Garth is hard at work. This is where I start the quilting process by cutting my fabric. No, this isn't a business. Garth calls it a blessing. While I'm sewing and piecing the quilt together, I think about that person. I pray for that person. Just pray for their comfort. In between shifts as a nurse, Garth has sewn more than 100 quilts, putting in thousands of hours and dollars. Back in 2013, my sister was diagnosed with breast cancer, and I wanted to make her a quilt to go through chemotherapy. I was not a quilter. I didn't know anything about quilting. With the help of Google and YouTube came this masterpiece, providing comfort as her sister battled breast cancer, comfort she would soon need. At first, it was, you know, why, Lord, why is this happening to me? I do, every, I, I, I eat right, I exercise, you know, I, I watch everybody food that goes in my mouth. Why is this happening to me? And then I finally got to the point, well, why not? I'm strong. I can take it. I can handle it. I can fight. This quilt is for a pastor who lives in Middle Tennessee. A labor of love. A hug always says You know, I care about you, and I'm sorry you're going through this. So I kind of look at my quilts as a hug. The stitching of the fabric, like a warm embrace in a time of need. It just feels like that's what I'm here to do, what I'm supposed to do. That story from CBS Memphis. 749 G. Scott is on at 9 with Ursula. Titanic is coming back for the 25th anniversary. That was a big deal for you, right? It was a super big deal. I saw it when it came out opening day. I was living in Las Vegas at the time. And I'm going to tell you something right now. Uh, I was in my 20s. And the scene when Rose gets into that lifeboat, mm-hmm. right? Oh, I thought you were the- going to talk about the car. Oh, no. Well, there's the car, too. <laughs> but yeah, but, but she gets in that lifeboat. And then, you know, they're with each other. And I found out and figured it out. It's the music, man. The music oh, yeah. in the Titanic is what chokes you up. Are you going to see it again? Yes. Yes, I want to see it. And then when the daddy tells his children, it's goodbye for oh. a little while. Oh, God. Oh. When the waters are rising and they're trapped like yes. animals in cages, I just can't handle it. And then remember when Rose says to remember, but Jack, but Jack was gone by then. And Rose was like, there is a boat, Jack. Oh, shoot. Yo, I, yeah. again, yeah, I'm going to see this. So good. Look, it's going to mess up my street cred, though. You know what I'm saying? It's going to make a mess up. Y'all heard G. Scott going to see the Titanic. Yes, I'm going to see the Titanic. Get me in you know, in touch with my inner self again. Yeah, I was in tears. I'm, I'm like Colleen. I, I can't, because I'm going to spend the whole first reel saying, don't get on the boat. Yeah. 
Don't get. We know what happens. Yeah. I, it's too much. How about the band? The band. The band. Oh, keep the band. playing. I feel like that's <laughs> us as broadcasters. Like especially since Dave has actually broadcasted through an earthquake in real time. I feel like that would be oh, us. We too. can relate to the band. Yeah. Like the show <laughs> must go on. Yeah. Right. No I matter what. That. I didn't know they were releasing it for the twenty fifth. So now I'm excited to go. Are you going to do like the whole IMAX? I feel like we did that back in the day. Yeah. You were supposed to see it like Avatar in the IMAX 3D or what? I don't think I didn't see it and I just saw it at a regular theater out in Las Vegas. Uh, But yeah, I I definitely want to see it again. Look, I love this whole, all the movies coming back and I know the, you know, Golden Globes, I think that Mm -hmm. recently is is, is last night, whatever, and, and the Academy Awards is coming. All I know is this. Tom Cruise and Top Gun and them need to win every award. Oh. Because, yeah, because that's what got us all back to the theaters. That's true. They did everything. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of people that's listening. You're probably like me. You've probably been in the theaters one time in the last two to three years, sure. and that was it for me. Mm-hmm. Was, going was it to- actually a good movie, though? Oh, my goodness, yes. Really yeah. Oh, no, it was really good. Okay. Sully, you see it, bro? I haven't seen a movie in a theater since 2007. Wow, two thousand. Oh, that was the last are Simpsons you, movie. Are you, yeah, are you being are you being serious? Yeah. Why? Oh, I just I got busy coaching afternoons, getting an early shift. I mean, the I real just story is yeah. he got addicted to movie theater popcorn. No, and so I, no he has I just to stay I just don't go. I just don't. You know, we home. That's not our jam. I just got so busy doing other stuff, and then on the weekends, it's just like sitting at home. Have you ever been tempted? Like, no. did Avatar tempt you? Oh, what movie would get you if if we were to bring back a movie from the past? What would oh, get you into theaters? Weird science. I, I have no idea. Probably in the theater. No, yeah. I don't. No, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm know. trying to think. Have to be something with a really good musical score or something like that, I guess. Oh, but, like Grease? Oh, God, no, like a good musical score? Like, we're talking John Williams. Oh. That kind of stuff. Okay. Like you know, it's interesting you brought up Avatar. Now, Avatar is breaking all these records. It's over $2 billion, right? And, I mean, I mean he's like, whoa, my goodness, breaking records. Here's what's interesting. Do you know anybody that has seen it? I know no. Oh, I know one person, Aaron Mace Mace, who, oh, okay. who works here. One, but that's only because I brought that same thing up to him. Oh yeah, yeah. Wait a minute. He and I was talking about this. Yes. He hadn't seen it yeah. before then because yeah. he and I were talking about it as well. Who's seeing this movie? No, who is watching so Avatar? The first one, you mean? No, no. The, the, the second one oh, is out second. right now. It took yeah. them like no. twenty years to to shoot. You know anybody that's seen it? I don't go around asking people what movies they've seen. <laughs> I, I saw the first one. I know that. What, what, what do you go around asking people, though, Dave? What do you do? You ask folks. Like, do you live in Mercer Island? Did you see that squabble on C-SPAN? <laughs> do you have any nuts or chocolate? <laughs> she nailed it. Yeah. That, that was pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, real quick before we go, yeah, I just yeah, want to yeah. tell all the listeners that are listening right now that Dave Ross looks really good He's today. Sharp today. No, no, you look really good. Yeah. I love the sweater. Oh, you look you. fantastic. Yeah. You, you, you and look, he's got a new watch. You look 10 years younger. Wait, new watch? Do you have a Fitbit? Yes. Is that a Fitbit? It's a, it's a watch that tells the time. So now you're dual watch. You have your tried level. and true but, time teller. But, but, and but, now- but I love the sweater and I love how you put the black t-shirt up under there. Man, you look good, bro. You're rubbing off on oh, him, G. You. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to match you. Now, that's, will, that's what will anybody in Mercer Island notice what you're wearing today? Nobody will notice because I will probably stay indoors the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> now that you brought it up, G Scott, nine o'clock, Cairo News Radio. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at mynorthwest.com.